This evening we are going to be finishing up Romans chapter 9. Uh, so we'll be in verses 30 to 33 of Romans 9. I'm going to read that. You can either follow along on the screen or if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along in your scriptures. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 to 33 it says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. As we've seen so far in the book of Romans chapter 9 over the last couple of weeks, Paul's really been answering a question. He's been answering a question of, has God been unfaithful? If you have studied scripture and you look at the Old Testament, you realize that God was working with specifically the Jewish people, the people of Israel. He covenanted with them. And yet when you come to the New Testament and people were making observations and saying, why is the church full of Gentiles and not Jews? It must mean that God hasn't kept his promises, that God hasn't been faithful to his word. So he's been addressing that question, particularly about God's unfaithfulness, whether he has been unfaithful in breaking those promise, in, in broken his promise to the Jews. And he answers that question with two different answers. The first one we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And the answer to that question, has God been unfaithful, is addressed by the fact that God in his mercy, has chosen for himself a people that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's been doing that really since before the world began. He made this choice. Theologically, we call that unconditional election. That based on a free choice of God, those who he has called would come in to be his people, both Jew and Gentile. And he chose that completely of his own Freedom completely of his own mercy and his grace. He wasn't compelled to do so. He wasn't pushed to do so. He wasn't required to do so. He did so because he is simply a merciful God. So the question of God's justice comes up. It says, is God unjust? And the answer that Paul gives in verses 6 through 29 of Romans 9 is no, absolutely not. Of course not. Because justice would really be what? Sending everyone to hell. That's justice. And yet God chose not to do that for some as an act of mercy. And I think underneath that question of God's justice and God's faithfulness, when it comes specifically to salvation, is this struggle that we have as people to make ourselves the central point of salvation. That we desire to be what is centered, the center perspective of not just salvation, but also all of life. We have a tendency to do that as people. So for the Jew arguing with Paul, salvation really should have been my ethnicity, my position, and what we'll see in the verses 30 to 33 is really my earned righteousness. Those are the things that I would look to as the basis of my salvation. What's the foundation of this salvation? And for the Jew arguing with Paul on this, it's me. It's my ethnicity, it's my position, it's my righteousness. 
That's, that's the basis. That's why I am saved. If we were to describe it this way, it's, it's like they would be producing a biography or an autobiography of themselves. If you've read a biography, what are you typically reading about? You're reading about the accomplishments of an individual. You're reading about all the different things that they did. And so for the Jew who's saying, the center of salvation is myself, they're really giving us a biography. Here's all of my attributes. Here's all of the things that I have done to earn this. Whereas what Paul is going to address is that humans are not the center of salvation. God is. God is the center of salvation. He is the one who makes the choice. It is not the different list of things that humans do that earns them salvation. Rather, it is God who has freely chosen to show mercy to some. So it's not as much of a biography or an autobiography as it is the life of a Christian is that of a testimony. It's a testimony to say, this isn't something I've accomplished. Here's not my list of things that I've done. Rather, here's God's list of everything he has done for me and on my behalf. That's the, that's the idea of salvation. That's the, the God-centeredness of salvation. And it has to be this way. Why? Because ultimately, if it wasn't, if it was up to us, we would miss it. There would be no salvation for us. If we were at the center of this, there would be no salvation because we can't do it. We would miss it. Romans 3 is clear about that. None is righteous. All have missed the mark. Not a single person would be a Christian, would have faith, would have salvation if it wasn't for the miraculous work of God and the merciful work of God in our lives. So God is at the center of salvation. That's all of the last couple of weeks. So I took Chris's, like, what, hour-long message and pushed it into about five minutes. So just think about that for the future when Chris is preaching. Most of his stuff can be boiled into about five minutes or the time. I'm just messing with him. He's not even in the room to laugh at me. Yeah, we'll, we'll let him know later. <laughs> the second answer is what we're going to look at tonight, which is verses 30 to 33. So why are Gentiles, why are, why are people even in the people of God? Why, why are people even there? And the second answer that Paul gives is that they have attained, they have attained righteousness. It's the word he uses in verse 30 when he says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. I want us to pause for a second and consider the idea of salvation because the word that's used, it gets thrown around a lot and there's, some people don't like it because it just has this ambiguous feel to it. And there's a lot of stuff we cram into that word. What does that word actually mean? And I think for Paul here, there's two different aspects of salvation that he's looking at. The first we've talked about a little bit already is that of the fact that God has chosen unconditionally and he has called for himself a people. That's one aspect of salvation. If someone were to ask you, why are people Christians? Why do people believe? Why are people part of the children of God? One of those answers is God has chosen that person. God has chosen us unconditionally. The other reason, and it works in complete harmony with this first one, is that we have attained righteousness. You see, it's not sufficient that God would just simply call us. If God was to choose you and call you, but then leave you as a sinner, there is no salvation there. It's not sufficient that he just simply 
chose us because God is still holy, he is still just, and he still needs to punish sin. It would be like if, if I picked a few of you from the crowd and I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. There's a condition, though. I need you to wear this certain clothing that I'm going to give you. If you put this clothing on, wear this clothing, it could be whatever I want, I'll give you the million dollars. That sounds great until I say, but guess what? I'm not giving you the clothing. You wouldn't get the million dollars, would you? No, because you can't wear the clothes that I would be giving you. So if we think of bigger picture, more important picture, in a more serious way, God's election of a sinner does nothing to save them if they stay in their sin. I can, God can choose all of us, but if, he, if there is no way for us to be righteous, we will not have salvation. So there's, there's, du, there's dual aspects of things. God has chosen us. Reason one, why are we Christians? Why are we saved? Because God has chosen us. Reason two, we have attained salvation. Now the question is, how have we attained righteousness? How have we attained this? We know that it's not because of us. We've already talked about that, Romans 3. None is righteous. All are sinners. There are plenty of people who would say that they are righteous. There are plenty of people who would say that they are good. But just stating something doesn't make it a reality. The reality is that all of us are sinners. And so if we tried to be righteous, just based on our own merits, just based on our own works, we would still be in our sin. But thankfully, God has not only called us and chosen us, but he has provided the means for us to attain righteousness. And that's through Jesus Christ. God made a way for us to be declared righteous because he sent Christ, his only son into the world. What the Bible describes is that he becomes the very righteousness of God for us. So that God no longer looks at us and sees sinners. He looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ who shed his blood and died on our behalf. So God's plan is not one of, okay, I'm going to choose you, but now you need to figure out the rest of this. You need to clean yourself up. You need to earn your way into my favor. It's no, I have freely chosen you. And I've also given you everything you need to be righteous in my sight. It's an incredible loving thing to do an incredibly loving thing to do because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve that righteousness. We don't deserve to be called. We don't deserve to attain righteousness and yet God has given it to us. How many of you, if I was to say, think about the person that you dislike the most in life, perhaps someone who's harmed you, someone who's hurt you, someone who's wronged you in a particular way, Maybe someone that you just don't even, you just don't get along with. You guys butt heads all the time. Constant conflict every time you're around each other. When you think about that person, if I was to say, sacrifice for them. Do something for them. Give of yourself for them. It would be hard, right? Hard if not seemingly impossible. Not something we would want to do. Yet when you read Romans... That's exactly what God has done for us. Romans 5 describes us as the enemies of God. And yet for his enemies, God sent his son to die. He chose mercy and grace. He gave up his comforts. He gave up his conveniences. He gave up 
Heaven seated at the right hand of God for what purpose? So that we would be saved. So that he could take our place on the cross. And God provides this for us to be righteous so that we would be declared righteous. He says in verse 30, Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they attained it by faith. So we're we're talking about people who, who didn't even look for it, who weren't even desiring it. The idea of righteousness here is, is not one of just morality, following the rules. It's actually one of positional righteousness, that, that they are declared righteous. They, they weren't pursuing a situation where they could be in favor with God, and yet they attained it. How many of you would describe yourself as like the good kid? You followed all the rules. That probably wasn't me. I'd have to ask my parents, but probably not me. Eddie was one. Eddie's like, yeah, I was, I was the one who followed all the rules. Yeah, your mom or dad says this, and you just, you do it. That's what you do. You follow the rules. That's not the Gentiles that Paul's describing. They didn't follow the rules. In fact, they didn't really have what the rules were. Sure, they had a conscience. There was the idea of natural law, like we looked at in Romans 1. But they didn't truly have, they weren't, they weren't looking for the law. They weren't looking to see, okay, what does God say that I should do and how I should live? They weren't looking for any of those things. They made no effort at all, and yet, what does Paul say? They attained righteousness. The Jews, however, he describes them in verses 31 and 32, and he says, these are people who looked for it. They searched for the law. They, they searched for righteousness in the law. They tried. They made an effort, and yet, ultimately, they failed. Imagine with me for a moment if you're, you're having some work done at your house. I'm probably in the next couple of months going to be putting a retaining wall up in my house, outside of my house. If, if I were to hire two groups of people to do that work, and I say, here's the retaining wall, here's the brick, here's everything you need. You've, you've got everything you need for this. At the end of the day, I want a wall and I'll pay you X amount of money. Group one shows up and they try as hard as they possibly can. They, they try, they make every effort possible, and at the end of the day, there's no wall. There's a pile of bricks, there's some stone, there's some different things, but there's no wall. They, they spent all day working, but they didn't actually build a wall. Second group, they didn't even show up. They're just sitting at home, slept in, had a barbecue, had all their friends over, hung out, had a great time, did no work. So with them, I don't have a wall either. Do I pay either of those groups? No. Because what, what was the expectation? A wall. Did I get a wall? No. So whether, whether or not they put no effort in, and they sat at home and had a barbecue, or they put as much effort in as they possibly could and worked their tails off all day, neither group ultimately was able to achieve what the expectation was, and so neither group gets rewarded for that. 
Both Jews and Gentiles failed to meet God's standard of righteousness. His standard is perfection. So if both of them failed, the question we have to look at in Romans 9 is, then why do some of them, why have some of them attained righteousness? Whereas some haven't. I think it's a key word in verse 30. It says they've attained a righteousness that is by faith. We've talked about the idea of faith countless times through Romans. But you have to also stop and think, okay, they've, they've attained a righteousness that is by faith, but faith in what? I think Romans chapter 10 actually helps us here. So we'll jump ahead a few verses. Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The object of faith, the goal of the law, the one who is the embodiment of righteousness is Christ. So how is righteousness attained by people who don't even pursue after it? It's through faith in the object of Jesus. He is the righteousness for everyone who believes. So so the Gentiles attained righteousness not because there was something special in them, not because they had done something unique that God had gifted them this righteousness. No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. There was nothing that they did. They didn't even pursue it. They didn't even search for it, and yet they were granted it because of faith. And just, just a reminder, because I think Chris referenced this a little last week too. This, isn't, this is not Paul making sweeping statements that all Gentiles are Christians. And he's also not making sweeping statements that all Jews are non-Christians. There are some Gentiles, there are some Jews, and he's, he's making this argument that there is this true people of God, this true Israel that he's described. And in this true people of God, there are now Jews and there are Gentiles. But it's not all, it's some. And I think that's a clear distinction that we need to make when it comes to this topic, because we could easily just write off and say, well, there are no Jews in the church then. No, that's not the case. I mean, Paul himself is a Jew writing this. He is providing a reason, though, a reason why the Jewish people, not all the Jewish people, are actually part of the true Israel. Because remember, he's, he's having an argument with someone in a sense. There are people arguing with him saying, well, if the Jews are not part of the church, then God's been unfaithful. So why aren't the Jews there? And that's Paul's giving us that reason. He's saying the Jews pursued something, and what we'll get to in a minute is they pursued it not out of faith. They pursued it out of a, a desire to earn righteousness, a desire to work, versus the Gentiles who didn't pursue anything, and yet when they expressed faith, when they showed faith, which is the gift of God, they attained this righteousness. It kind of reminded me of a story in the Old Testament, the story of Jonah, if you're familiar with that. Jonah was a prophet of Israel. He had actually made predictions that came true, so he was a legitimate prophet. God comes along to Jonah and he says, I want you to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. Tell them that they have 40 days before they'll be destroyed because their sin is so great. If you recall the story, Jonah actually runs. He goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat and there are tons of sailors around. He gets on this boat and... All of a sudden, God meets Jonah and these sailors in the ocean with a giant storm to the point that the sailors think all of us are going to die. 
They're crying out to their God. They're telling Jonah to pray to his God. And Jonah's like, yeah, I know why this is happening. Going through this story, they actually take Jonah at his suggestion and they throw him overboard. At the end of Jonah chapter one, it actually says that these sailors, these men who did not believe in God, they did not believe in Yahweh, begin to worship Yahweh. They begin to worship God. They begin to pray to him and sacrifice to him. Men who were not seeking God. Men who, who were not looking for righteousness through God, and yet they found it. Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh after a long trip inside the belly of a fish. He actually eventually gets to Nineveh and he preaches to these people, repent or you'll be destroyed in 40 days. Actually, I don't even think he tells them to repent. He just says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And, and they respond with repentance. From the, from the least person to the king, they actually even go so far as to have their, their animals covered in ashes as a sign to say, we're repenting of the way we're living. People who were not searching for God and yet found him. They weren't searching for righteousness and yet they find it. Why? Because of the mercy and the grace of God. From the Jewish perspective, though, the reason why all Jews are not part of the people of God then is that they spent too much time trying. They were the good kids. They were the ones who followed all the rules. Verse 31 and 32. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they thought that what they were doing would gain them righteousness. And yet, what does it say? They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. It did not succeed in reaching it, reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it in faith, but as if it were based on works. The problem is that they never understood the true purpose of the law. What Paul's not saying is that the law is bad. Paul's made that clear. Go back to Romans 7. The law is good. The law is holy. Paul's not saying the law is bad. He's saying the problem is these, these Jewish people, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand the true purpose of it. Because the law perfectly maintained would produce righteousness. The problem is they can't do it. No one can. They they cannot perfectly adhere to the law. And so the Jews attempt to achieve this law through their own effort. They're going to work. They're going to do everything they can to produce this righteousness in them. And what do they ultimately find? What does Paul say? They did not succeed in reaching it. They failed in what they wanted to do. They tried so hard and yet they failed. And it's It's not surprising that these people are arguing with Paul, is it? It's not surprising that a, quote, religious person would be frustrated. And I think it's fair to say, too, that a person whose life is marked by, we'll say, quote, religion, by morals, by doing good things, they look like a good person, they're oftentimes the people that are farthest from God. They're oftentimes the people that are farthest from God because they're trying so hard to do the right thing, to, quote, be close to God. And yet, in trying to live right, they're actually far from him. 
Because what they're saying is, I'm going to work. I'm going to work my way into this favor with God. And God's saying, that's not how this works. And so when, when they realize that, when they're confronted with the reality of their own sin, they can't believe it. They won't accept it. It's easy to call out the sins of somebody who's not a moral person. They know that they're sinners. They know that they're, they're doing wrong with the way they live. A moral person, though, they get so frustrated because the religious person is just going to rest back on what? They're going to rest back on their own performance. So I tried my hardest, and Paul is saying, well, that's kind of the problem. You tried your hardest. Righteousness is not about effort. Righteousness is not about doing a bunch of good things. And so the problem for the Jews is that in pursuing the law based on their own righteousness, they ultimately miss Jesus. The Gospels are, are clear with this. It's very apparent when you read through the Gospel accounts. Jesus, the, the, the people who resisted him the most, they were not the sinners, quote sinners, they were not the people that society looked at and said, you're the worst of society. It was the religious people. The, the ones who looked the best, the ones who, did the, who worked the hardest, who did the most stuff, who thought to themselves, every ounce of righteousness that there is, I have because I've been able to produce it myself. So I'm, me and God are good. When Jesus comes on the scene and says, that's not how it works, they ultimately kill him. That, that's how much they resisted Christ. Because the person who is so religious and so desiring to do the right thing and base their value and their worth on being good, they're so full of their own self-righteousness that they don't have any space left for the righteousness that Jesus provides. They're so full of their own achievements and their own performance that they don't have the ability to rest in the performance of Jesus on their behalf. It's hard to convince a religious person that they're sinners. When people on the outside look so put together and they, look, and they seem so moral, it's so hard to convince them that they're not good. But Paul's saying... You've tried so hard, and yet this righteousness you wanted to attain, you, you failed. You haven't attained it. I've mentioned in a prior message, prior sermon in Romans, um, the parable of the two sons. Probably familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. It's easy to see the sins of the prodigal son, isn't it? He runs away. He wants to be away from the father. What's nothing to do with the father? Going to live his life, going to enjoy everything. It's easy to point out and say, that's a sinner. That's a sinful person. He ultimately comes to his senses and while he's in the midst of caring for pigs, realizes this is, this is not good and goes back to the father and is received and he's welcomed. But the end of that story is the story of his older brother, the older son. The one who did all the right stuff. He stayed with the father. He worked his tail off. And he made sure to tell the father exactly what he had done. I've been with you all these years. I've served you. And yet you're, you're celebrating the return of this prodigal son who was off. Yet I've been here the whole time working my tail off for you. 
And in the end, the prodigal is the one who actually comes back and realizes the worth and the value of the father when the older son who's been with him all the time has spent his entire life just working and not enjoying the father. He's missed out on a relationship with the father because he's been so focused on just doing and working. And that's, that's the Jewish people. They've been so busy trying to fulfill the law and do all these different things that they haven't even taken the time to enjoy the God who gave them the law. And I think that's a lesson for us. With respect to our position in Christ, to become a Christian, it only happens through faith. We've mentioned that. It doesn't happen through our works. If you're trying to earn your way to favor with God, you will miss it. The only way to find favor with God is through faith in the work that Jesus did on your behalf. But for the Christian, those who have trusted in Christ, life after justification, so justification is the, point, the moment in time where I am united to Christ, I am declared righteous based on the work that Jesus did on my behalf. After that, our sanctification, our growth in Christ is not just a list of stuff for us to do. It's not there for us to just do and live a bunch of rules so that God will then be happy with me. Because even as Christians, we fall into this trap that I I have to do now. I have to work now. And if I do enough good stuff, God will be happy with me. I'll find favor in God's eyes. And what ends up happening is we get very frustrated with God because we're doing all of this stuff. We work and we work and we work and we try to be good. And then the bad thing happens. And we look at God and we say, I did all this stuff for you. You're not holding out your end of the bargain. I've been working for you. I've, I've used my gifts in the church. I pray. I read my Bible. I try to be the best person I can be. And yet this bad stuff is happening to me and it's your fault. You haven't held up your end of the bargain. So we grow angry with God. We grow frustrated with God because we think if, we have, if we've done all this stuff, God has a responsibility to now return that good stuff in kind and give me good stuff. So we either become frustrated with God or we become frustrated with ourselves, which I think we see often. We work and we work and we work and then the bad thing happens and our response to it is to say, what else is in me that's bad that's causing this to happen? We, we waste our lives just exploring all the different things that we have going on, all the different possible ways we could have sinned. We try to correct every little thing and we We make it so meticulous and it drives us crazy. But we think, if I just did this a little better, God would give me this more. So we become frustrated with ourselves because we feel like we haven't been able to clean ourselves up enough. But God doesn't want us to just simply clean ourselves up. He hasn't turned the Christian life into a a checkbox. You do a bunch of things, you check off a few boxes, and then God is good with you. Rather, what we've seen in Romans already is we are already righteous. There is not a single good thing you can do that would make God say, man, I love him more, I love her more than I love him or her right now. Because in Christ, God already favors us. God already looks on us with kindness. 
We should avoid wasting our position in Christ by just seeking to follow a list of rules. It really is. It's, it's wasting our Christian life. It's wasting the joy we can have in Christ if we turn our lives into just simply doing a bunch of stuff, checking off a bunch of boxes. So then you could say, well, are you saying just go ahead and sin? Well, if it doesn't matter, just go ahead and sin. We've already looked at Romans 6. No. The answer to that's no. Romans 6 clear on that. It's not, a, it's not a license to just go and sin and do however we want. Instead, we should be asking ourselves the question, are we actually enjoying Christ? Are we finding our worth and our value in him? When we, when we start to feel like the value I have is based on the way that I live and the works that I do, are we challenging that? Are we challenging that to say, no, that's not true? Are we praying to say, God, help me to rest in the fact that my value and my worth comes from you and not in the way that I live? If you're getting in the word and you're praying because you you feel that God will value you more if you read your Bible or you pray, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Read your Bibles. I'll say that like, that's the first thing you should be doing. Read your Bibles. Pray. But if your motivation for doing it is to say, well, God's going to like me a little more after I read than before, we're reading for the wrong reason. Our pursuit of God is done not out of a compulsion, but it's out of love for him and a desire to know him. So we read scripture. We pray. And it's not that we're going to feel like a good person after we read it's that we get to enjoy and know the God who has saved us. That's why we read. We, we get to enjoy him. We get to know about him. We get to learn about him. And ultimately, the Jews, they pursued God through the law, through their own efforts. And they failed to properly see Jesus. And they missed the joy in knowing him. Paul describes it, and he says in verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The idea of Jesus being the goal of the law, the goal of righteousness actually tripped them up. They, they could not get over Jesus. It's like they were, they were walking down a path and in the, in the distance is righteousness. And they're doing all this stuff on the path that's called the law. And then they didn't notice the stone in the middle of the, of the path. And that stone is Jesus and they tripped over him. And they fall flat on their face. And that's what Jesus is for the Jews. He's a stumbling stone. Verse 33 actually quotes a couple passages from Isaiah. And, and in quoting it, Isaiah, Isaiah says that he is a rock of offense. I think back to what we've learned in Romans. The Jewish rejection of Jesus was not some accident. It was not just something that, that God hadn't foreseen. We've already seen God is sovereign. God knows everything that's happening. It wasn't an accident that, that the Jews ultimately failed to reach Jesus. Rather, you look at Isaiah, you look at the Old Testament written hundreds of years before Paul was even around. This was a, this was a prophecy that came true. That Jesus was going to be a stumbling stone for the Jews. That was predicted and actually happened. So it wasn't an accident. 
And you know, it's not only the Jews that struggle with Jesus. You look around our society today, you, look, you, you interact with a non-believer today, they stumble, they trip over Jesus. They trip over Christianity. Well, you know, Christianity, Jesus, he's just not fair. Christianity is just not fair. I can't accept it because it's not fair. I would agree with the person that says it's not fair. Because fairness is that all of us are in hell. That's fairness. If Christianity was fair, all of us would be in hell. And, and I trust we would say, I don't want fairness. I want grace. I don't, I don't want Christianity to be fair because if Christianity was fair, I'm, I'm dead. I'm worse than dead. I'm separated from God and his goodness and his mercy for eternity. That's what fairness brings us. Grace brings us heaven. Grace brings us Christ. Well, you know, I don't deserve Jesus. It's another argument here. You know, I'm just too bad of a person. I don't, I don't deserve this, this gospel. I don't deserve this Jesus. And I would, again, agree with that statement. None of us do. None of us deserve this. But the gospel is so simple, and yet it's so hard for people. It's so simple. Put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And yet it's so hard. Why is that hard? Because if everything we've looked at in Romans 9 so far is true, if the gospel understood is true, that it really truly is God-centered and not me-centered, if all I bring to this equation of salvation is my own sin and Jesus does all the saving, what don't I get to brag about anymore? Myself. If none of it's about me, I can't brag about me. I don't get to brag about how good I am. If, if the only thing I bring into this is my own sin, then what do I get to brag about? I get to brag about Jesus. People don't like that. People don't like that. They would rather hold on to their pride than submit themselves in humility to a God who would save them. And yet, because he has saved us, we do get to brag about him. That's what worship is. When we sing, when we worship in private, when we, when we honor and glorify and bring praise to God, that's what worship is. We're actually bragging about our God and what he's done for us. But people don't like that. They don't like the idea of giving glory to someone other than themselves. And frankly, if we're honest, looking into our own hearts, we don't like that very much either sometimes. Sometimes we want to puff ourselves up, like, look at all the good stuff I did. Yet in reality, the only reason we ever did anything good is because Jesus is living in us. It's because of grace. You know, there really are two ways we can look at Jesus. For the Jews, he was a stumbling stone. They tripped over him. They couldn't get back up. He became for them what they just, they couldn't get over. Scripture in other places states that Jesus is a cornerstone. He's not a stumbling stone for everyone. But for the, for the Christian, for the believer, for the person who would say, I have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, Jesus is our cornerstone. And the idea there is that everything in our lives is built on him. Everything in our lives, every aspect of my life is built on and centered on Jesus. 
Our marriage relationships centered, built on Christ, our cornerstone. Our, our friendships and our relationships in the church built on, established on Jesus, our cornerstone. The way we parent built on, established on Jesus, our cornerstone. The way we spend money, the way we work, our jobs, our church, all of it is built on Christ. Because for us, for Christians, he is not a stumbling stone. We don't stumble over Jesus. We build our lives on him. He is, he is the foundation to all that we do. And that's, that's what happens when Jesus becomes the center of everything in our lives. And sometimes we struggle where we, we seek to make ourselves the center. We seek to make ourselves the center of our own little worlds when in reality, Jesus ought to be the center and the foundation of our lives. I think books are great. Don't get me wrong. I've got piles of books. Books are great. But if there's something I can encourage us to do within the last four minutes, if you say, I want to I build my life on Jesus, get into the word. You want to be a better parent? Read your Bible. You want to be a better husband or wife? Get in the word. Read your scriptures. You want to be a better coworker? You want to be a better worker? You want to be a better church member? You want to be a better friend? You want to be better in every aspect of your life? Read scripture. Supplement it with good books. There's plenty back there. But your primary source of what's going to feed you is this, is the Bible. If we want to be, a bunch, if we want to be people who, who have founded ourselves on Christ and said, Jesus is my rock, he's my cornerstone, he's the one I rely on for every aspect of my life, we have to be reading our Bibles. We have to be in relationship with him. We have to be searching through this to know him better and to love him more. And not out of some duty, not out of some compulsion, like we, we have to do it. It's not that we have to do it, it's that we get to. We get to read our scriptures. We get to engage with God in the Bible. Paul finishes up this section in quoting these verses. And unlike, unlike our own sin that condemns us, unlike people in the world that would seek to put us to shame, Paul says, if you've trusted in Jesus, you believe in this Jesus who is our cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. It's easy for us to look back at our sin and be ashamed of everything that we've done. But there's no shame for those who are in Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame of it and is seated at the right hand of God. Every moment of shame, every ounce of shame that we, we maintain, and every amount of shame that creeps back up every time that we sin or every time we face that person who seeks to push shame on us, the gospel says there is no shame. All of that shame was taken at the cross, and so we're no longer ashamed because we can rejoice in Christ, our cornerstone, the centerpiece, the foundation of our lives. As we move to take communion together and celebrate the death of Jesus, let's rejoice. Rejoice in the gospel. Those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we have attained righteousness. We've attained righteousness, Paul has said, it's through faith that we have done so. 
We've attained righteousness, and this is not a righteousness that is our own, but it is gifted to us through Christ. And it is a righteousness that saves us. As as we prepare for this, I would invite anyone, anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, who would say they have placed their faith in Christ, participate, join with us. I invite you to join with us. For those who who have not, you would say, I I, I don't believe the gospel. I would would ask you to just not, not participate with us. I wouldn't want you to do something. I would not want you to participate in something that you don't believe in. This is for those who have trusted in Jesus and say, Jesus is my center. He's my cornerstone. He is everything to me. And so that's why we celebrate and take this time in communion. What we'll do is the the worship team will come back up. We're going to sing a song together. Um, Once that song is finished, I will come back up and uh, lead us all in communion. All of us are sinners. All of us have done wrong. And if, if you're holding in your hands a cracker and a juice, it's symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it's because if you're holding this, you are confessing the fact that you have attained righteousness. Why? Because of faith. Because of faith in who? Because of faith in Jesus and the the cracker and the juice represents the fact that he has died for us. He has shed his blood. He has broken his body in our place and on our behalf. So as we eat and drink together, may we be blessed and may Christ confirm to us that he is our righteousness and that we will, be, we will never be put to shame. Let's take and eat together. I'd like to finish our time of worship this evening by reading from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 and 5. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but the sufficiency is from God. I will add amen.